才华已居此地，未免太可惜了吧？这位是杨姑娘。这姑娘胆子可真不小，话语捉拿杨慧珍，明天就做榜文，贴在各集市要道。杨小姐，跟我回去吧。哎身陷绝境，你们应当据此守株待兔。杀人的道理。Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heroic Purgatory in Asian Cinema Podcast. My name is John, and with me is always my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Busy, busy, busy. Lots of writing. Oh, nice. So、uh, busy with your blog. Yes. All right. Um, you know, I've been busy as well, but uh, not uh, not with film-related stuff, just with work-related stuff.、Uh, it's one of those busy periods that kind of happen once in a while.、Uh, but but I、uh, managed to make just enough time to record to make to record the next episode of the series, which will be on King Hu's A Touch of Zen,、uh, the 1971 Taiwanese film.、Uh, so as always, Jason,、uh, why don't you introduce us to the film、uh, and give us a summary of it? Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a long introduction because King Hu、uh, deserves one. Born in Beijing, he emigrated to Hong Kong in 1949, where he entered the movie industry via Shaw Brothers Studio as an actor and then set director, scriptwriter, and assistant director. And、uh, he made his fully fledged film debut、uh, with the wartime drama Sons of the Good Earth in 1965. But King Hu is probably most familiar to、um, martial arts movie fans and Asian movie fans through his Wuja movies, and、um, it was his second feature that was his breakthrough,、um, "Come Drink with Me,"、uh, which featured Cheng Pei Pei,、uh, who is today celebrated as one of the first heroines of action cinema. So, "Come Drink with Me" was one of the titles we considered for this series of heroic purgatory, which is dedicated to female action heroes. And I believe we talked about her in the、uh, the episode covering、um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as well. Anyway,、uh, following that, Hu then moved to Taiwan, where he produced his most important works, Dragon Inn, which was a massive hit throughout Asia, and A Touch of Zen, which was a massive critical hit around the world. Now, A Touch of Zen blended history, tales of the supernatural, and interest in Buddhism and Chinese opera aesthetics. And it became the first Hong Kong film to win an award at the Cannes Film Festival. It was a 1975 edition, and it took the Technical Grand Prize Award. And the next Hong Kong film to actually win an award was Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together in 1997. Back to a touch of Zen. It took two years to make, and was、uh, so long because, as was typical of his filmmaking process, which was very diligent,、uh, he researched costumes, settings in detail, and did intense planning, such as handing out storyboards to cast and crew. 
which was counter to what was normal with the Hong Kong film industry, which was to shoot fast and get the film out the door as quickly as possible. Uh, with A Touch of Zen, he filmed in Taiwan, and the film was released in two parts. The first part ending at the bamboo forest scene, which is probably its most famous scene. Uh, the second part then began with the same fight. Uh, that fight was choreographed by Han Yingji, a former Beijing opera star and um, the action director. And he was the titular big boss in the Bruce Lee film of the same name. I was actually thinking, I, I did not know that, but I was thinking, wow, like A Touch of Zen came out the same year as as the big boss. Uh, and, you know, they represent two ends in the spectrum of Chinese, of Hong Kong, of Hong, I mean, this is Taiwan, but it's, you know, there's connection there. Two opposite ends of uh, the spectrum of martial arts fi- of martial arts films like you have ultra realistic modern uh a new approach by bruce lee and then still like the traditional wuxia on the other end yeah you uh would you say that this was the around the time period that hong kong sort of kung fu films started to take over no because i think uh, it, uh, this is this is an era of hong kong cinema that i am very very uh much less acquainted with than the so-called golden age, the 80s. But my understanding is that martial arts films had been popular since the 50s. Okay. Uh, and I think what what this era represents is a change which started with Bruce Lee, uh, the Big Boss, the uh, Fists of Fury, and uh, Way of the Dragon, and Enter the Dragon. And that represented sort of like a change into more realistic, more action-packed, that will sort of popularize the likes of Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee and Donnie Yen, you know, uh, perhaps a decade later. You know, like the 70s was sort of like still a transition period where like there was a wuxia competing with this more realistic brand of of martial arts. But then by the 80s, sort of like the the, the advent of stuntmen would take over and there would be this, this trend. So this was sort of like, uh, you know, like, so almost like, I, th- I don't think it's, it's, 100% appropriate but Touch of Zen could almost be like the swan song of this sort of more traditional style of of uh, this wuxia genre which is still alive today but definitely not to the same extent it doesn't have the same influence that it had when this film came out yeah you could say um, definitely around this time period it looks like a Touch of Zen failed at the box office both in Taiwan and Hong Kong and it wasn't until it was released as a three hour version seen at the Cannes Film Festival that it became better known but it seems like King Hu's films in the 1970s generally weren't that profitable at the box office. But uh, you know what can't be denied is that he was influential on the Hong Kong New Wave because you had um, directors like An Hui working on his films and Choi Hark um, collaborated with him on the uh, 1992 film The Swordsman. So yeah, even if his films failed at the box office, they were a massive influence on the next generation of directors. And like you said, it's a bit of a case of the baton being passed. So, to summarize the plot, A Touch of Zen takes place in Ming-era China, the 14th century. We start out in the film following the life of a lowly scholar named Gu. He lives a modest life with his mother near an abandoned fort in a remote mountain village. When a beautiful young woman named Yang, Hui Zhen, moves into the fortress, he becomes smitten with her. But both he and the audience soon discover that she is part of a group of people on the run from the forces of an evil unit who wants to kill her. So martial arts action and Buddhism ensue as her story takes over. 
All right. Uh, so Jason, uh, so this is, I, I think I said this before when we announced the film, or maybe it was in private. I remember this was a first watch for me. Like I've, I've admitted before, wuxia is not a, a genre that I am super, super familiar with. And in fact, most of the wuxia that I've seen, which are a few, are uh are later than this so i have not seen any of the you know especially like the the uh, from the time where wuxia was sort of like dominant in the in the martial arts genre however what's your, what's your history what your history with this film uh and what's your history with king who maybe uh yeah like i've mentioned in a previous episode of um heroic poetry that i'm not really that familiar with wuxia either and uh but i had seen uh, touch as end before um the recording of this series. I think it was around 2016-17, um, Masters of Cinema release. And um, uh, like I knew King Who was important, I just didn't know how. Um, and I just sort of randomly threw it on one Saturday evening, um, because I had three hours. Um, and uh, I was just blown away by this movie because um, I was expecting probably typical martial arts, um, maybe flying around forests and so forth. And um, you get that, but there's also a whole morality component to it and um, a little bit of Buddhism as well. And um, when that takes over in the, in the second half of the film, um, it's just, I can remember just feeling <laughs> exhausted, um, probably mirroring what the characters were going through as they just had this epic battle and they were still on the run. Um, and it's uh, like that sensation of being exhausted and being put through the ringer essentially has always stayed with me. Um, so I wanted to watch it again. I was glad to have another chance to watch it uh, with the recording of this uh, episode. Yeah, um, I, this was a, for like I said, this was a first time watch for me. And in fact, I have not seen any other King Who films. Uh, I, we, of course, we talked about Wuxia in this podcast. We talked about. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, for which King Hu was a huge influence. Uh, maybe The Assassin counts as a Huja film? Yeah. Um, one of the, actually, one of the actors um, in A Touch of Zen, uh, like, uh, if I could get his name. So, Shi uh, Chen, who plays Gu Sheng Tsai, he appears in The Assassin as an old man. All right, so there's the obviously like a clear reference there, but yeah, so this was uh, again. I was I, I I'm in complete agreement with you. I I found the film very entertaining. I'm not surprised to hear from what you said that it didn't do well in the box office because I found it very, you know, very well paced, very entertaining. There are some plot choices which I found perhaps strange, but maybe maybe consistent with the genre. But otherwise, I didn't I didn't feel like it was too long. I didn't feel like it was it dragged at any point. Um, it felt very very uh, briskly paced, you know, the story moved along very well. It was somewhat episodic, which I suppose we can talk about. But, uh, and I was very, uh, very surprised by how grounded the film is in terms of uh, what you'd call wuxia stereotypes. It didn't have a lot, and especially uh, something, someone, for someone like me who doesn't find the wuxia genre particularly appealing, King Hu's editing style, which feels almost somewhat amateurish, which I don't mean that in a negative way, it just feels unconventional, I guess, makes it a lot more palatable. All the more outrageous uh, wuxia tropes, like the flying around in wires, are usually depicted with very, very fast cuts. 
uh, perhaps somewhat unusual and often cutting between the sort of like the act of magic, which is not really magic in this film. It's, it's you know, it's the, the typical, you know, like martial arts skills that people have, which are um, which are either flying around or doing very impressive like knife throws or whatever are usually intercut with other people's reaction. Like if a character flies high in the sky towards you, it cuts back and forth two or three times between the person flying and the 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 other person's face so it's it's a very unconventional unc- con- editing style which i i found it very uh, uh, again not having watched wusha from this era and before only having watched later wusha i found it very unconventional but also it made it much more appealing to me as someone who i just have not seen uh i have not like just been a fan of the genre so uh, so I enjoyed that aspect of it very much, and and also how how visual King Wu is. I did not expect that a lot. Like you associate Wuxia with sort of like a a, a soap operish quality, and and I'm not alone in this. I've I've seen other people reading it where like they said that the Wuxia is sort of like the soap opera of chi- of uh, like Chinese folklore, uh, and sort of you associate with like a lot of odd melodrama. Uh, a lot of you know, like over the top emotions, and of course over the top action. But that there was none of that. Like it's, I I thought that a lot of things that King Hu did were extremely subtle. Uh, a lot of things were conveyed visually. Like there was, it felt like absolutely no excess of dialogue when there was no need for it. So so I was I was impressed. I'm I'm actually looking forward to watching more King Hu films. Yeah, it's like that fast uh, paced editing and jump cuts. Um, it's got sinuous camera work, um, which is very balletic as it follows like uh, combatants through like forests and uh, along coastlines, just weaving in and out. That helps with like uh, three hour, the three hour pace, uh, the pacing of a three hour film, and like his other films like Raining in the Mountains and Legend in the Mountains, which are like I think two hours each. You know, they go by so fast because of like his um, control of visuals. And, uh, yeah, just to, uh, go back to like that whole, whole thing with Wu Xia, like it's melodramatic, everything's heightened, but, uh, it's a lot more restrained, um, with King Hu, it feels like. So you get the sense that like these people have powers, but they're not over the top powers. They're just really highly trained, really, um, good fighters. So you have that sense of realism to it. I uh I we can debate this but I am of the opinion that there are no supernatural elements in this movie. Even like you said obviously the 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 flying around they're just you know like exaggerated martial arts skills but everything else I would argue that it there is there are no supernatural elements uh to it. I mean it's fascinating because I read that King Hu was a uh, was very fascinated by the sort of like the traditional Chinese ghost story. Yeah. Uh, and he, he uses this heavily, he hear heavily, but it not not in a way, not in the sense of the real ghost. As far as I'm aware, he only made one movie, like one horror movie that uses ghosts, and it was like his very last movie. Uh, Raining in the Mountains. No, not Raining in the Mountains. Legend of the Mountains features lots of ghosts. When was that made? Uh, I think... Is it nineteen seventy five or something? Okay, so I, I guess I was wrong about that. Yeah, it's called Raining in the Mountains. Uh, no, not Raining in the Mountains. That one's set in a Buddhist uh, temple. It's Legend of the Mountains. So it features a lot of the same cast as um, A Touch of Zen, and that's something that happens in a lot of his films. They'll have the same um, cast. 
playing uh, in each of them. Yeah, Legend of the Mountain was made in 1979, and it was shot back-to-back with Raining in the Mountain, and both were shot in Korea. Okay, interesting. And sort of like that was, okay, so that was a, th- a thing sort of, uh, and we can discuss that more. The other the other thing that I think perhaps we mentioned is the the amount of Buddhism in the uh, in the movie, and I, I mean, I'm not even sure that there is any. I think, don't, a hundred percent quote me on this, but I I recall reading something while researching this episode that King Hu is not a particular expert in Buddhism, uh, or martial arts or anything that is frequent subject in movies. He just finds the subject fascinating. So even the Buddhism in the movie, I don't know that we should take it at at a hundred percent face value. Yeah, it's um like it's the very lightest and most superficial type of Buddhism or religion. It's sort of like. In each of his films that I've seen, it's all simple characters, good versus evil, essentially. And I think there's a lot more complexity in the down-to-earth stuff, such as like um, the characters are fighting against evil, corrupt eunuchs or uh, government officials who've become despotic. Um, and uh, that seems to be much more of a bigger element than um, the Buddhism in his films. Absolutely. And even the title, A Touch of Zen, that's the Western title. Uh, I, I I couldn't find like a, a, a official translation of the original title, but I just ran the the Chinese character through Google Translate, and it spit out uh, a chivalrous woman. So I don't know if that's how accurate that is. Yeah, from what I've read, a, a chivalrous woman or a swordswoman seems to be the translation. So I, again, I suppose maybe it's like a hook for audiences, like this Buddhism aspect rather than something um, he's seriously contemplating. But then in the second half of A Touch of Zen, you know, Buddhist monks have a major impact. And um, yeah, thou shalt not kill. And uh, the killers end up getting punished (laughs) spiritually. I I don't know enough about Buddhism to sort of like uh, seek anything. I know uh, that that at some point they do something akin to an exorcism. There's this. I felt the second half of the, not not so much the second half of the movie, but maybe the like the final, the third act, basically, uh, like the the conclusion, the the battle. I felt like there was a lot of parts there where it felt uh, maybe rushed, or maybe not so much rushed as as it felt like you know it's all about the set piece and the story. To in my opinion, started losing a little bit of cohesion. Uh, there was like again, there was like a part where it seemed like they were performing in an exorcism. And they were, you know, like uh, trying to, uh, you know, say, let's cast out the evil or he's there is evil in him or something like that, almost to make it sound like he was possessed or something. Maybe that was just a bad translation, but it felt uh, it felt somewhat strange to me. It also I, I, I don't think the film gave us enough justification as to why uh, what's what's the name of the main female character, Yang Zhang. Yeah, uh, uh, as to her leaving goo, that also did not, I did not understand what the motivation was, especially since she's about, she goes after him anyway, like they following him to protect him. Uh, I don't understand why just not go with him or, or like leave him in the first place. But uh, again, it felt to me like the third act of the film is they didn't, they sort of like, they couldn't figure out a good way to connect it. It was just all about to getting to the set piece with the monks, to the action piece with the monks. Uh, and I think the story suffered a little bit there. Yeah, especially in relation to the first half of the story where there's so much intrigue built up. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Exposition. The exposition is handled expertly. This is a film with a lot of exposition, and it, it, that's goes double for you know Western audiences that may not necessarily pick up some of the more subtle hues. And I think the film strikes a perfect balance between sort of like letting you know what's happening, but also you know not necessarily beating you over the head with it, like letting you you know sort of like. Uh, draw the lines yourself between you know certain certain hints and certain you know like character motivations and what's happening and why things are the way they are and like i said uh and it seems you agree that in the third act that sort of goes away a little bit yeah it's just sudden jumps into fights with buddhist monks and um no real sort of build up and then no real i suppose you could say catharsis at the end where everything's um, put into its proper context. It's just an abrupt ending, like uh, this guy's found, um, I guess, enlightenment or punishment or, yeah, it's, and it's a complete disappointment compared to the first half where King Hu takes his time building up the characters and the situation. And like you said, expertly doing so by following people around the village setting. Yeah, there's also like the the first half Goose character seems to fit better with the sort of like the 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 main which would be like I guess the main plot which is the uh, the the Yang and her generals escaping which is sort of like what the core is and I think like this is another story where it like I think it demonstrates very well the difference between what the main character is and what a protagonist is and I would argue Goo is the main character here because everything happens from his perspective at least for you know 75% of the movie uh and then of course the the uh young is the protagonist because she drives the action she is the one that sort of like you know for, for who uh, dictates the plot and for against whom other characters react uh, king again king who does this thing which is a bit like a bait and switch where you think you're watching the main character and then all of a sudden he introduces another character who's got a massive impact on the story like uh dragon in has the MacGuffin of um, rebels passing along secret plans and a female assassin going into a, uh, not Dragon in Dragon, 10 days in Dragon City and a female assassin searching for those plans. And essentially another character ends up fighting in the final conflict with the big, with the big antagonist. And, uh, um, and it's like a, an example of like how, King who's sort of like taking his time to build up the narrative, but he's always got something else up his sleeve to sort of switch perspectives on the story. Yeah. And the way he builds up Goo, uh, uh, wait, what was his name again? Goo Gong? Goo. Yeah. Goo. Goo. Okay. I had it right. Uh, it, it's brilliant because it's sort of like uh, pretty much there's like almost half an hour or 40 minutes of plot where he is what's no what you might call a failed scholar someone who loves learning who has sort of like uh you know spent his entire life he's 30 years old and they make his mother makes a huge point out of that uh he's 30 years old uh, uh like has has on quote unquote wasted his life accumulating a skill that others would deem useless but then the events preceded that he is perhaps the most useful member of that rebellion for lack of a better term because of his so ability to think strategically and his sort of like you know scholarly knowledge of you know of the writings of the the philosophers and the wise man of the past or something whatever you want to call it like yeah, he has this scene where like he's desperately chasing Yang, and uh, like his 
sort of dating strategy is to say, hey, I can help you beat this oncoming army. I've studied all sorts of texts about war. Uh, I've been eager to commit war crimes ever since I was a little boy. This is my time to shine. Yeah, yeah. Talking about, you know, like battles, you did mention that the bamboo fight uh, the, uh, the, it was probably the most famous. And that's indeed, it is the most famous. However, after having, I, after having finally watched this film, I would say the, fi- the fight in the haunted house or the pseudo haunted house it is infinitely superior in my mind. I was I was a bit underwhelmed by the bamboo fight. I was I had read about it, and I you know of course in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, we talked about sort of like the homage fight to that, right? Uh, it's you know every martial arts film connoisseur talks about the bamboo fight here. Uh, finally watching it, I, I, I maybe I have watched clips of it on YouTube. I cannot tell for sure. It's you know it's so prevalent in martial arts cinema that maybe I've seen it somewhere. But I was extremely underwhelmed with it. But the haunted house scene, which is maybe slightly longer, it's quite quite long actually, where they finally like pretty much kill every member of the uh, of the one general that chases them. I forget his name. I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was an action masterpiece. Uh, I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I I felt the opposite. But like again, I think. Like I said at the beginning, the, so you um, thought so you thought the bamboo fight was great, but you thought the haunted house fight was underwhelming. The haunted house fight, there was there was a lot going on. Um, sometimes it was difficult to keep track of um, who was where, and uh, Goo is such a creep in that fight because he pops up when Yang's got someone at her mercy, and he's like a, a, a woman's compassion is her weakness. I, I don't just... think that was Goo. Was that Goo? I don't think that was Goo. I think that was one of her uh, generals or one of her... I think it was like the guy who is infiltrating the enemy as uh, a secretary of what he is. I think it was. I don't think that was Goo who says that. Was that the medicine guy who said it then? Yeah, I think it might have been one of them. I, I, I Again, don't quote me on it, but I'm like I wrote that quote. I wrote that quote down while I was watching it. Your womanly count, count kindness will impede your success, right? As she's about to spare her life, or, or like one of the the enemy's life, and then he comes out and watches her, and she. You can see that she's. I I, I love that scene. I like that's why I thought the haunted house scene was very uh, was great because of like moments like that where I thought it was very very. Uh, very just much more complete. It had everything basically, and it, it, it was also the one where all the characters come together. It could have been the finale. It could have been the like sort of like the final show, showdown of an action film, in my opinion. Because the, until that point, th- that's the biggest villain, right? We don't we're not aware of anybody else. Oh, well, we we are aware that there's this bigger organization, the Eastern Despots or whatever they're called, that is chasing them. But that's the the sort of the main guy that we've seen, the one that the entire movie is sort of like like being told that he's coming, he's preparing his like oh, troops and he's coming. And then he finally comes and they, they have to like amass this strategy. So I, I don't know. I thought he was brilliant. Yeah, I preferred the um, bamboo fights uh, simply because it was just much more visually interesting. Uh, like the contrast of the sort of green and red and uh, blue of the uniforms and people walking through mystery um bamboo groves and the the um actual fight between uh yang and her generals and uh the sort of free uh militiamen or the free assassins it's just really interesting to look at and again you had this these fights where um the choreography of the camera is just really absorbing 
So I find that much more compelling than the sort of mass mayhem of the, um, admittedly, I guess, more impressive because of the numbers of people involved um, uh, of the fourth fight. Yeah, I think, uh, this is speculation, but I think King Hu spent a lot of time preparing that haunted house theme because, first of all, in the beginning of the of the movie it's foreshadowed it's foreshadowed so much because like the the talk of ghosts is pretty much like happens almost from the very start of the movie where they talk about how this place is haunted is haunted and then they use that to their adventure later on there's that sort of like the signature shot of the spider webs right and that's how the film opens i'm assuming that's maybe a famous scene in chinese literature or chinese folklore uh without being aware of the source material which is I mean, it's a series of short stories from what I understand from like the like 1400s or the 1500s or something like that. Uh, but uh, I'm assuming that's a famous scene because like they, they make such a big point of it. But like, I do think that King Hu was sort of like building up to that. And it feels like after that, it is that I think the film kind of falls apart a little bit. Uh, there's like the spider webs at the very beginning of the film. And then at the start of that scene, there's the spider webs there, which is, you know, maybe like a too obvious, but it still works in my opinion, like the trap that they're heading to. And it's still a very hard fight uh, for that. Whereas the, I thought the bamboo fight was like kind of too straightforward in my opinion. Again, I have nothing wrong with how it was executed. I think the entire film is visually, it is stunning. And in just in that sense, the bamboo fight didn't, didn't stood out to me whereas the the haunted house fight stood out because it just had so many elements it was so sort of like i think grand uh and maybe it's somewhat diminished that it is it is not the final fight it, the film continues after that whereas i if maybe it could have ended there well i don't i don't know if it, well, that would have been the, the best choice but it, it, it at times it feels that way but there's also i think the conclusion of that scene i think is fantastic where goo finally he has been absent from the battlefield he planned the whole thing uh, and then he he's uh, that's why I don't think that guy who said that to her is goo because I think he was just standing at safe distance because it's established very early on that he cannot fight uh, so it would have been useless for him to be there but then he finally walks after everybody's killed and he kind of like admires his work he goes through all the instrument he kind of like tongue-in-cheek shows the camera how everything was done right uh, to kind of like dispel the illusion of magic uh, that that the enemies were fooled by uh, and then he walks by and then all of a sudden he sees the dead bodies and it kind of hits to him that this was, you know, like the, the, that he was sort of like so removed from the actual, uh, the actual kind of like gravitas of the situation that he only saw the strategy. He saw the, he saw the like almost like a, a purely academic aspect of the battle without realizing the human toll. And he sees all the dead enemies and I think he sees the dead, one of the generals that had died. Uh, maybe then he kind of panics. He thinks, well, what if, uh, uh what's her name? Young. Uh, die too. So I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was just kind of a, almost like a, a moment of genius from the director. Kind of have that have that scene end that way, uh, and then after that, like I said, I think kind of when he goes and searches for Young, and you know they had a baby, which is of course there is a scene before where you said where he flirted with her, where it's very clear that they had sex, but there's no indication because they they kind of fall asleep, they just hug, and then they wake up with fully clothed the next morning. Yeah, but then you've got one of the pursuers who walks in on the scene. He's like, you're lucky to have had a tryst with her. And um, she comes from a good family. He says, he also says something to her like, you should be ashamed for doing such acts or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if it was a censorship that you cannot show 
imply sex visually, but you can imply it verbally. I don't see the difference, but I guess it could have gone a little further. But, you know, the standards of the time, who knows what the limitations were. Yeah. But again, just to go back to that scene, like the aftermath of the battle where uh, Gu is effectively just walking uh, through the ruins and he's seeing people skewered who have been stabbed and um, like he's finally confronted with the handiwork that his brain has wrought and uh, it, it did ha- it does have an effect as on the viewer I, 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 you don't often see these scenes in martial arts movies where people are confronted with their handiwork essentially you know people get punched kicked they fly at the frame they get stabbed um, they uh, we don't see them in the next scene, and it's kind of like the film's rubbing Goo's face in it. It's rubbing the audience face, the audience's face in it, and I think that has like a, um, an actual physical effect on a viewer. Yeah, uh, and I said, uh, you know, I it, to me it still doesn't make sense that Young just leaves him, decides to, to to separate. It seems to me like at first I thought she hides in the monastery's protection, but she doesn't because she goes after him anyway. Uh, obviously to protect him, but if that was the whole plan, uh, it, like again, like go back to why did she leave him in the first place? Uh, there also, I, I don't necessarily buy the fact that he was wanted, that he has a wanted poster. He was completely removed from the entire situation. There's almost nothing to link him to the fugitives. He was kind of operating in the shadows. But I, I guess, I guess you could sort of like very force yourself to force yourself to make that leap that somehow he was recognized by someone. I don't know why he would be, but whatever. Yeah, that that was a that was a great sort of um, uh, a photo fit drawing of him on that uh, scroll that the that the random guy walking through the forest had. Just like yeah, very- it, it, like I said, the entire third act feels like just a, 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 a random sequence of unlikely events to lead to the final action piece. Yeah. Uh, also, he didn't. The drawing had a beard. I don't think any at any time in the movie he has a beard. No, he doesn't. But like you said, it's just like there's nothing to link him to what happened at the fortress. Like, uh, because everybody who is in opposition to Yang and her group has been wiped out, essentially. And um, yeah, he was not seen collaborating with them. So absolutely, he, and I don't. I like I said, I don't. I'm pretty sure he was not in the haunted house fight scene. Uh, I, I I think maybe he was in the in the bamboo fight scene like from a distance. I don't know if yes. he was. There. Uh, I don't remember, but uh, he certainly did did not get seen, and everybody died anyway. So I don't know. Yeah, and uh, another aspect of it that kind of uh, bamboozled me was uh, Yang's um, not so much attraction because she's. I don't think she's ever really attracted to him. Um, but the reason why she slept with him and uh, it seems like maybe it's out of a sense of duty to provide him with a son because she got close to his mother and that never really rang true to me maybe I'm missing something though yeah in the end where uh, he gets the son and then it's finds his son and then it's revealed that uh, that there've been the Buddhist monks and she is watching them from a distance and she almost sheds a tear right yeah, uh, I'm not sure how to make of that. Is it is she shedding a tear for her son? Is shedding a tear? I never bought that she is actually in love with him. I always, I felt like it was, uh, you know, like like they slept together immediately after 
like he sort of like uh, promises to offer his sort of like strategic genius to, to his battle because he convinces that you are you are under uh, outnumbered, so you have to fight with with strategy as opposed to just pure strength. Uh, and sort of like he convinces her and then they kind of like get together and then it's the implication of sleeping together. Uh, I thought it was just like, you know, just, <laughs> I mean, this is sound crass, but just a, th- a thank you gesture, basically. Like, like you know, like uh, this guy joined our team, you know, he's after me, might as well do him this this solid <laughs> or or whatever but i don't i never bought that she's actually in love with him or has any any significant romantic feelings for him yeah i got the same thing i just assumed that he, she had got close to his mother and she heard the constant complaints about how she's like the goo family name's going to fade away because her son is so useless um and uh, Yang just took pity on Gu and uh, decided to see Yeah, that, that, that's as valid interpretation as any, in my opinion. I think in the end, she's sort of like, uh, like she had decided very, all, all of it analytically to give her son away because she had no use for him uh, in the life that she chose, that she would choose even though, again, she, she follows them anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, again, she like almost sheds a tear in that close up. And I'm not sure what that tear is for. I guess for the child, that would be understandable. Yeah, I would have assumed it was a child because you don't give birth and, well, not not normally and not feel some attachment and, like, immediately after you're going to not be in that child's life. Yeah. Um, there is... Uh, uh, one one thing that fascinated me as I was watching is about, like, King Who's influences uh, is making this and, like, visually, stylistically. Of course, uh, from from the perspective of the narrative, ancient Chinese folklore and stories are his influences that that's the obvious part but uh cinematically uh what what did you get a hint of anything uh anything any any obvious influences i suppose samurai movies um in terms of some of like the um efficiency of some of the fight scenes like a a brief swipe of the sword and um, fighting in bamboo forests absolutely absolutely based on the wuxia films that i have this was very uh jidaigeki like or chambara like uh, yeah. To use the other term for the genre, and, and not not what I've normally seen in like Chinese action movies or Chinese wuxia films. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was sick to me, uh, like reminded me of this a lot of, was Sergio Leone's films. The way he builds up the action right before sort of like the strike happens, which Sergio Leone is sort of like famous for doing, for like dragging like the sort of like the build up maybe beyond what a normal director would do, they sort of violently fight. And especially in the haunted house scene, I, I, I noticed that. There was another part, like in the beginning of the movie, where we see Goo sort of following people around and sort of like, he knows that there's something that's happening, but he doesn't quite know what is yet. And we see constant, this kind of almost voyeur-like kind of like approach to, to like seeing the world from his perspective, right? Uh, and that reminded me of Hitchcock, especially Rear Window, uh, Psycho, and um, what's the other one? Uh, Vertigo. Like a lot of a lot, a lot of the camera angles and the way sort of like we just sort of like see him and then see what he sees from a distance and seeing other characters interact and do their stuff. It it, it was a, it felt a, a very Hitchcockian to me. I thought I thought those early scenes were fantastic because when you rewatch it, you realize the characters. They've got this really well choreographed sort of set of movements, which lets you know that they know they're being watched by goo, by government forces, 
and you get the overall impression that he's clueless. And like us, the audience, we're uh, stumbling upon something far bigger than uh, we could have ever expected. And that's mean that's maintained throughout the film. You get the sense that the characters not necessarily looking down at him with disdain, but they know more than him. They're wiser than him. And um, like he just comes across as really naive uh, with a second viewing. Um, especially like, well, um, I wouldn't say naive. I would say an outsider. An outsider, yeah, yeah. Um, like the uh, the scenes that the scene that really impressed me is when he's trying to follow Yang and um, she's having her first major battle and he just can't keep up. He physically cannot keep up with her and the assailants and he stumbles over and he falls onto the ground and he's looking up. So like a low angle shot, looking at Yang in the distance with the sun in the background. So it's just silhouettes and it just felt so poignant. Like this woman that he loves and he's just not a physical match for her. And there's so much of that conveyed in the scene. Absolutely. And even like you said, like you hinted, I'd say as soon as like five minutes into the film, you know, like I said, this guy's clearly the main character, but you immediately get the sense that there's something bigger going on. There's like something like way, way uh, like more important that is kind of like about to sort of fall into this guy's life. Just from like, again, like the few movements, the few like whispers that the other characters make. And I think it's uh, such, uh, you know, like King King Who does such a great job at conveying all that without dialogue, without sort of like bombarding you with exposition or unnecessary dialogue. Absolutely. He'll just use the introduction of a character with a different costume. So this, there's a new guy in town. Hey, I know, Goo says, hey, I know everybody in this town. So that couple of people, uh, those couple of people just arrived. They're strangers. You're a stranger. And then you'll see like police officers walk in with like a special set of uniform. And you're kind of like, okay, this is, there's something a lot larger going on. It's like just using visuals to convey this just so massively done. Uh, and there's like, in, in sort of like in a similar way, he does the, like the, and this is, relevant to our theme about female action here is about sort of like the the contrast between two female two important female characters in the movie which is the 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 goo's mother and then yang and then you know you have like goo's mother essentially trying to push his son towards uh towards like essentially what is the sort of the traditional way of life right you have to take the officials exam get married, give me grandchildren. Like that's, she sees herself as, you know, like a sort of like embedded in this sort of like Confucianist patriarchal system. And that to her success is, you know, through that lens, whereas like Yang is seeking something different and it's the opposite of that, right? Like he sort of becomes, I I wouldn't say love. I don't know that he ever falls in love with Yang. Maybe he does. I don't know. I, I saw it as more fascination, is like he's been he's been just by his way of life we get a sense that he's kind of has rejected this traditional sense he wants something different he wants adventure he wants he wants you know like a different world than what is his and he finds it in in yang and her story and sort of he 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 kind of clings to her because of of that sort of like promise of something of something i put i put in my notes modernism but it's that's <laughs> not quite right right it's it's just a different way and i think it's it's maybe you could call it feminist i don't know that the film certainly would operate in those terms but it it's 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 anti-traditionalist maybe would be the the, the correct term well he definitely um adheres to sort of the filial piety um the exception being um having a partner having a wife and children and he seems to have some sort of buddhist like zen like contentment just acquiring knowledge 
until a woman enters his world and um then he seems to reject what he once had um he has this desire for adventure and in the second half of the film he does become a sort of errant not necessarily errant knight but he's wandering around well he does say that he always wanted that adventure right whereas the battle approaches he just didn't have the skill or the opportunity to do so i think it's more so that he's always been fascinated by battle yeah of course yeah so that's that's i mean i think that is perhaps a a shooing from what you called like the filial the filial piety that i think he loves his mother of course and he takes care of it of course a lot of it is economic right they cannot afford to live anywhere else because they only they live in the only place in town that doesn't ask for rent the haunted fortress yes <laughs> exactly so so i think i think like i don't necessarily know that like that he is particularly clinging to the traditional aspect in any way other than what he absolutely has to and of course because he loves his mother right i mean there's he's not going to reject his mother even though he eventually ends up rejecting her by <laughs> sending her away and then bringing her back to use her in his you know like schemes yeah but i i did see his participation in the final battle as being driven by this sort of newly awakened sort of if not 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 necessarily lust but love for this um woman who's not necessarily not not the best match and i'd like you know i I'm, maybe this is one of those things where there's like a continuing series of him wandering around but you know all the main characters survive right so he survives obviously the baby survives the yang survives her general presumably survives uh the buddhist monk is questionable again it's questionable whether that's meant to be taken as supernatural or is meant to be taken as sort of like the the hallucinations of an injured like general Right, because he gets that big blow to the head, and then everything changes, and everybody just kind of watches the monk transform into Buddha at the top of the mountain. But again, it's it's in the desert. Uh, everybody's kind of beaten up. Everybody has a, has had a few blows to the head, so it's questionable as to what's real and what is just everybody's head at that. I I like I said in the beginning, I maintain that none of that is meant to be supernatural. Is just you know, it's just it's it's just trickery. It's it's you know, trickery either trickery or just hallucinations or like a, a a mistaken point of view yeah there's there's something transcendent about that scene but not necessarily supernatural and i suppose you could read it as just a manipulation of the mental processes of the assassin at the very end and um forcing him to kill his sons one of whom is played by Samuel hung yeah i was gonna, I was gonna ask did you did you recognize him i i could not believe he was in this i didn't know and then he, the moment he shows up i say wait is that Samuel hung yeah. Very young, very, very, very fully, fully cheeked. Well, Sammo Hung also appears in King Hu's film, um, The Valiant Ones. And I think um, Jackie Chan appears in Come Drink With Me as one of the children. Um, like King Hu was a big fan of King Opera. And yes. um, like I said earlier, the um, guy who did all the stunts, um, whose name I'm blanking on right now. But uh, yeah, he was an alumni as well. You know, wasn't he also the, the guy who played the final villain? In the, the Big Boss. Uh, the stunt, oh, yeah. and also the, the, in here, yes. In the in the movie, yeah. In a touch of Zen, yes. Yes, he's the. I I honestly thought he's lacked his acting, especially his facial expressions were a little bit uh, off. He was like, I, I felt like he was overreacting to some things, and there was like almost like the same shot of him just kind of tilting his head back <laughs> and acting in like shock or awe, whatever the Buddhist monk would do something like like impressive or yeah. something like that. It felt like it didn't, like I thought the film is fantastically acted, even for being, you know, 
a different culture, perhaps a different, you know, like a, a lot of a, a, these Asian movies, especially older Asian movies, there's a different standard of acting. But even taking that into account, I thought the acting was brilliant, but he was, <laughs> he stood out to me as someone who maybe was not an actor by training. Yeah, this is the thing with like, um, well, films from the Chinese diaspora, everybody's multi-talented and uh, maybe it's a case of um, Jack of all trades. And uh, I, ha- I can't remember any of his other performances right now. So I can't say whether he's a good actor or not. Yeah, I, I, me, me either. That's right. Uh, but I think, I, I mean, the rest were fantastic in my opinion. Everybody just acted fantastically considering how many, how many more they had to do in terms of action in this film. Uh, like the the goo goo was you know so 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 masterful. I hope he won something for this because I thought he was fantastic too. I I like the um one general who's playing the blind uh, fortune teller. Yeah, he was great too. Yes, yes. Yeah, just the sense of humor in his line deliveries where Goo's like, "Hey, uh, who are you?" And he's like, "Well, I'm not blind." There was uh so we, we, we talked about sort of like the the role of the female characters in this one, but. I, while researching, I read that ever since the wuxia genre became popular in the 50s, female act martial arts heroes in wuxia films was nothing uncommon. In fact, it was very, very common. It felt like after this that female action roles became rarer and rarer with a sort of like the advent of modern action films in Hong Kong, sort of like the golden age. And then that sort of came back a little later after that. Yeah, I think Chang Pei Pei said, um, like Kung Fu films... Very much more macho, not necessarily a place for women. Yeah, like with, I, th- I think perhaps that was sort of like a, a side effect of the uh, action film sort of like uh, shifting to more realism and sort of like the domination from the stunt team, which maybe for, you know, reasons of training, it was primarily composed of men, right? So you had to, to, to shift from pra- maybe for pra- pragmatic reasons, uh, in addition to maybe for I don't know other reasons that like like these like the the people who did these dangerous stunts, as opposed to the wire work which was traditional, were primarily men, and that was sort of like how the industry was set up uh, uh, until that point. So it it was inevitable that it was just kind of like uh, you'd see this diminishment of female roles in the martial arts industry, in the martial arts movie industry. Yeah, um, Chang Pei Pei herself was a dancer and she was brought into the world of martial arts. And that mirrors uh, Michelle Yeoh, um, who was a um, sort of model, ballerina. And um, she said herself that like uh, the men in the industry were kind of questioned her presence at first. Like, what's she doing? Are you talking about Michelle Yeoh? Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, um, uh, which she mentioned in Supercop. And it's kind of like, like this period of like the late 70s through to the 90s where like um women were put in the shade essentially yeah but i bet i i i'm willing to bet chang pei pei had an easier time getting into it because again like the just like the type kind of work that she had to transition to from being a dancer to this kind of almost like another type of dance right i think it helps like this the the the, the fight choreographer has said he was interested in making everything like a dance so you yeah you like the performers are working to that standard yeah and it's just like i think this kind of movie is a lot less physically demanding or or at the very least a lot less dangerous physically than what action movies would eventually be coming hong kong and taiwan perhaps well you've got strategically placed trampolines uh as opposed to it like lots of wire work and um having to use padding to take um profoundly dangerous falls but there is there's trampolines and wire work yes but it's not as extreme as like Choi Hark's sort of um 
wuja films later on. No, that that's right. Like I said, this is surprisingly grounded. Yeah. There is also like I I thought like I wonder if this you know like someone could make a TV show out of this because I thought the film was very episodic it was almost like you know like set pieces or or at least a, a serialized story and maybe that that like kind of like uh, has to do with maybe the original format where you know like a, a series of short stories may be in the source material I'm not a hundred percent sure if that was the case but perhaps that was that's how it was. Well, I definitely appreciate TV series just to build out the sort of drama that was happening in the second half of the film. Uh, did you think, again, going back to the final part of the film, uh, did you think that the monks were a bit overpowered? Or at least exact, maybe too exaggerated as to how strong they were? Well, there are, there are two sets of scenes with monks fighting. And in the first scene, there the abbot is accompanied by all the monks and they are subdue the uh, evil Eastern Army guys with ease. And in the second half of the film, uh, where you have that final confrontation, the abbot's surrounded by young monks and they're all dispatched quite easily. And then he seems to gain real, uh, like su- he becomes much more superpowered. Um, yeah, it seemed like, uh, like compared to the rest of the film, he was much more overpowered. Yeah. And in the end, he's brought down by subterfuge, right? Yeah. Like, uh, Which is ironic. Because that's what Goo says. He says we are they are they are we are outnumbered. The only way we can win is with subterfuge. And in the end, that's sort of like the monks undoing as well. Yes, like in a battle between good and evil, evil's going to use every tool at its disposal. But good uses that too. I mean, good uses every tool at its disposal as well. Uh, presumably, assuming that uh, Goo and uh, Yang are his uh, are the good guys, which is I think what the movie wants us to believe. But there's an overall sense of rejection of violence at the end. Like after that final, after that big climatic battle, there's a sense like these characters are spiritually devastated and they have to try and ascend beyond that. Yeah, but do they? Because, you know, like there's this almost rejection of uh, violence by the monk who says, you know, like who tries everything in his power to object violence, but in the end, that's how it has to end, right? <laughs> he pretty much smacks the guy so hard in the head, he starts seeing colors. I think it's just like, a, like with any religion, it's a constant battle with the material world and all of the desires that are in it. And it, the, like, I think at one point the monk says, um, I haven't lost interest in what's going on in the wider world just because I'm a, a, a monk. And um, it is like framing it as a battle, a constant battle. That, um, the, like anybody that pursues religion um, has to undergo, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay. I mean, what, what else can we say about the film that we haven't talked about yet? Uh yeah, I'm sure that like, we've talked about just how fantastic it looks, like the colors and um, uh, the camera work. And um, even though it's three hours, it flies by quickly. And um, you know. do you think it would have been better in sort of like in a Kill Bill type of type of distribution where you we did preserve that first two part format as opposed to being one three hour movie? No, absolutely not. I think it should be seen as one go, even if. The second half, um, and, you know, has weaknesses. At least it builds up to uh, to it, as opposed to like ending at the bamboo forest fight, and uh, like that's kind of anticlimactic. I 
I, I, I don't know that I would say better, but actually I don't mind it. that Because I said, I think the film is very, very, very episodic. In fact, this could even be split into a miniseries, kind of like the what was done with that other Tarantino movie, uh, The Hateful Eight. No, was it that one that they did that to? I'm not sure. The Hateful Eight, where the Netflix is kind of like like re-edited it with Tarantino's permission, of course, re-edited it as and presented it as a... Uh, as a as a miniseries, like a four or five episode miniseries, and I think they could do this to this film absolutely. Maybe in the original, because the original was a, a two, the two original two part was maybe twenty minutes longer or something, yeah, uh, or thirty minutes longer. I forget how much. Uh, so I I think this film I don't I, again without actually seeing it. I don't know that the two part version or like the miniseries version of this film would be better, but I absolutely don't. Uh, don't think that this needs to be a full movie. I think I think this because of the nature of how the story is told. Uh, I think this could be shown in parts, whether it is two parts or whether it is many parts. I don't think this movie would would dim, be diminished by that. I th- I would totally be on board for a series just to build like like that second half of the film because the first half is just fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I I think there was uh, one like little thing that kind of bothered me. Uh, uh, and this has bothered me. It is so subtle, but uh, after I noticed it, I could not unnotice it because there's there's a little quirk of old anamorphic lenses which look this, where the edges are squeezed out with comparison to the center. So whenever the camera pans sideways, you can see that squeeze is very exaggerated. So every time there was a pan sideways, you could see like the everything at the edge of the screen was very squeezed compared to the the compared to the center of the screen. And like once I noticed that, it kind of bothered me so much. I mean, it's a very minor thing. It's something that cannot be helped. It could not be helped at the time, but it was, uh, <laughs> uh, it was something that I just could not unsee after I saw it. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Which scene was it in? Oh, it's, I mean, it's the entire movie. It's, 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 a, oh, okay. it's, a, it's a feature of the lens. If you noticed, I open it, like seeing the opening scene as it pans through the mountains and can't try to compare, compare the center to the edge of the screen as it moves you'll see that the mountains are squeezed at the edge of the screen and they get de-squeezed as they move to the center, as the camera pans. It's something with, like, anamorphic lenses are, are supposed to squeeze the entire screen and then you de-squeeze it when you project it in film. But old anamorphic lenses were not, the process was very difficult, so it, not, it did not squeeze the entire image uniformly, so it squeezed the edges at different ratio compared to the... Uh, to the center of the of the image, so it's, it's it's a very technical thing, but it's something that it's it's present in a lot of old movies, maybe slightly older older than this, uh, but around this era it could have been thing too. But it's 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 very noticeable in in wide landscape shots as opposed to close ups. It's it's much less noticeable in close ups. Okay, I'm gonna have to rewatch this film with that in mind. It's. I mean, it don't because it's like once you see it, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be very. It's like it's the one thing that it, it's essentially inconsequential but it, it's it's kind of distracting like at, at the edge of your sight all the time I I just, i'm just really curious now because this is a bit technical because I, I i do photography yeah. so the things like this i tend to notice more than a lot like i'm i'm fascinated with the sort of the technical aspect of it with the, the equipment and the cameras and lenses and, and material and film so so that's that's why i tend to notice these things more than like the average person say yeah uh, I would say out of all the King Who films that I've watched, and I think I've watched about six, uh, this is probably the best one, uh, aside from Dragon Inn. Aside from Dragon Inn. Okay, so because th- I, I said I wanted to, to, to experience more King Who films, but I was 
after you said that, that kind of makes me a little bit pessimistic as to I started with a too high and I, it's only going to go downhill from there. Come Drink With Me and Dragon Inn are both really good films. Okay, okay, I'll check them out. Are they shorter? Uh, yes. Okay. And also, like, Raining in the Mountains, and, like, Legend of the Mountains is a bit of a drag. Raining in the Mountains is better, but they both feature sort of really exquisite exterior shots, lots of outside work, um, where you're in forests and you're seeing a whole myriad of colours in the, uh, uh, the foliage. It's just really nice to look at. Oh, so I guess, I mean, we can talk about sort of what we talk about always at the end of our episodes because the, our theme is uh, female action heroes. Well, th- this one was maybe perhaps, I mean, there's clearly a female action hero. So definitely, so th- there's no question that this feats our theme. There is, like I said, the distinction between what a main character is, which is unquestionably goo, and what the protagonist is, which is young, but maybe not just her. There's perhaps she shares that role with some, maybe it's the generals or her family uh, a little bit, because it's more about her family than her uh, specifically. But it, she's, of course, the survivor of her clan or her Whatever it is, the unit in Chinese uh, hierarchy that she belonged to. But is it safe to say that this film doesn't make sense if we swap the female character? Could it be a young prince as opposed to a young princess that that this happens to? Is that is there is there would that be a, a, a would that change the movie in any significant way? Or is the the fact that she's a female character is is that quintessential to the film? I suppose if we take the reading that um, Gu is only driven. Uh, although, yeah, although I've read that the original story does have um, uh, homosexual aspects to it, um, I think in who's telling of this uh, story, but um, like if you take the reading that he's driven um, by his uh, sort of love for this woman, and um, the whole film builds up this thing about him finding a partner um, to create a family with, then yes, yeah, she has to be a woman. Uh, and yeah otherwise other elements like she could be the wandering son of a deposed general who's on the run yeah a general that's what that's what he was yeah Uh, I was going to say I think had that been the wandering son of a deposed general I think you still have a movie there and maybe a very good movie but I think it does change like the relationship between Gu and the wandering general would be that you would we'd be talking about a very, very different thing. And the fact that, you know, in the end, we end up with a son, with a child, I think that definitely kind of has to happen. Like that, like So I would say, yes, I would agree with you that I think it is sort of like maybe less essential than some of other examples, but it's still, I think it it is part of the film's DNA, the fact that it's a woman. And, you know, I think what adds to the fact is the history that, like I said, like, there's a long, the, already at this point in time when the film was made, there was already a long history of female leads in martial arts. So it's not like they, they had to, like, they didn't know how to write them, right? Yeah. Like, they, they already had experience with that, and that always helps when it's, you know, like, if, if you if you have a tradition where you don't, have a history or you don't have experience writing female characters in a particular genre in a particular role usually it usually ends up being a male role that just happens to be played by a female character but if you actually have good writers or you if you have a tradition where you have female roles or or any kind of role male roles in certain types whatever then you that ends up being a lot more authentic and i think that is the case here yeah like we're like these uh martial arts movies wuja movies are based on folklore 
which have a long history of uh, swordswomen, um, which you've absolutely. discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Like in Chinese folklore, uh, women play a, a big role. Yes. Various, various, various roles, not just a single role. Yes. Um, all right. So I, I think that is a good place to end our discussion of A Touch of Zen. Unless you have anything last minute to add, Jason? Uh, yeah. Um, well, we're going to mention King Hu later on um, in the news section. But uh, yeah, just uh, reading about the man and um, his influence on martial arts movies. I, I'm surprised he isn't better known, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm surprised too. I was surprised that, you know, I actually... I had not seen any of his films. And in fact, I don't think I had heard of him. I don't think I've had heard of him till, you know, doing research for the uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon episode. Of course, I don't, I wouldn't take myself as a representative on this case because I have avoided wuxia films and that's what he's most associated with. Yeah. So that perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, of an un, un, uncharacteristic case in sort of like what the average cinephile knows about, Hong Kong and Taiwanese uh, film. But yeah, I, w- I would probably say he is perhaps a little bit underknown and underappreciated. Absolutely. Um, and it's um, good that his films have uh, been subject to a lot of restorations. Um, yeah, the copy that I watched of his was fantastic. Yeah, and they're actually um, uh, on sometimes on the festival circuit as well. All right. Uh, so you did, say, you did say that he's going to uh, appear in the news so we can jump... We can finish our discussion here and to jump into our news section. So what's what's in the news, Jason? So Five Flavors Film Festival is going to take place in Warsaw, Poland from November 15th to the 21st. It's in cinemas. And from November 15th to December 3rd, it's online. And um, we have films by Zhang Yimou, Full River Red. Um, we have a South Korean um, 1930s spy drama called Phantom by Lee Hai-young. And we have Naoko Ogigami's Ripple uh, playing. Uh, and we also have two films by Chihiro Ito, a director I've raved about in previous episodes of Heroic Purgatory, specifically In Her Room and Side by Side. Those are like her first two directorial works, and they're really good films. And Hail to Hell, which we've both watched. Yes, I remember, I remember that one. And uh, there's going to be a retrospective of King Who films. They're, they are all online apart from one. So people can watch Dragon Inn, A Touch of Zen, Legend of the Mountain, Reigning in the Mountain, and The Wheel of Life online. And Come Drink With Me is going to be screened online and in cinemas as part of a section called Hong Kong Heroines at Five Flavors. So the full program will be announced on October 26th. Um, in other festival news, um, Tokyo International Film Festival announced their lineup. That's running from October 23rd to November 1st. Uh, big sections dedicated to Yasujiro Ozu because it's like a centenary celebration. There's a focus on Hideo Jojo um, and a celebration of Tony Leung uh, with a screen of 2046 and um, lots of uh, Japanese uh, films. We've got the Chicago International Film Festival running from October 11th to the 22nd. Um, in terms of Asian movie highlights, you've got The Boy and the Heron, Evil Does Not Exist, Perfect Days, Monster, Korean film Concrete Utopia, the Chinese film Only the River Flows, and the Filipino-British film Raging Grace. Uh, The Hawaii International Film Festival 
takes place from October 12th to the 22nd on Oahu and through, November, through to November 5th on neighboring islands. And there's a spotlight on Japan, Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, Korea, and also an Asian American and indigenous lens. So highlights include Concrete Utopia, Day Off, which you really like from Osaka Asian Film Festival. A film called Aum, The Cult at the End of the World, um, a documentary about the infamous cult that the, the 1990s sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway network. Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell, which won a big award at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and you also have Evil Does Not Exist, um, Nomad, Monster, Killing Romance, Kubi, The Boy and the Heron, Perfect Days, Mountain Woman. So these are all films that we've mentioned uh, throughout the festival season. And last but not least, we've got The Radical Cinema of Kiju Yoshida from Defe- December 1st to the 7th at Film at Lincoln Center. So all we know for now is that they're going to screen a number of works by Kijo Yoshida. Um, this is his first major retrospective in New York in years, and uh, no word on the titles yet, but probably Heroic Purgatory, uh, which we named this podcast after, um, that's going to be screened, hopefully. Um, there's also the films of Edward Yang um, that's going to be uh, from December 22nd to January 2nd. And that's essentially it as far as um, the festival highlights go. There was more, one more kind of piece of news or rumors rather than, according to Toshio Suzuki, the producer, Miyazaki is working on another film. Oh, yes. Which will take another five or six years to complete. But you kind of called it. I was skeptical because, of course, we know that Miyazaki has said he'd retire after every film for the last three or four uh, but this one, I thought it was it because of his age. I think he's his eighties, right? Yeah, he's the never quitting man. Yeah, he's uh, eighty-two years old. So, I mean, you know, as long as the mind is sharp, I guess the movies are not necessarily a f- making movies is not necessarily a physically taxing endeavor. But still, like I thought, you know, he's just going to be it. But no, according to Suzuki, he was working on a, yet another film after The Boy and the Heron and the Heron. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe maybe this will be a faster one. But uh, I'm looking forward, of course, I'm looking forward to watching The Boy and the Hare once it becomes available in some form for me. But, uh, you know, uh, looking forward to hearing more about this new project that he's allegedly, right now there's just rumors, I think, although from a reliable source. Uh, All right. So anything else about news, Jason? Uh, Yeah. Recent acquisition of Studio Ghibli by, um, was it TV Tokyo? Oh, I, 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 I had not heard about that. So it was announced at the end of September that Studio Ghibli uh, has been acquired by Nippon TV um, after struggling to find a successor to Hayao Miyazaki. That's the headline from the Guardian website. So does that mean that Hayao Miyazaki is not part of Studio Ghibli anymore? Oh, no, he's part of it. I think he's got a chairman role. So he's like, uh, and Toshio Suzuki still has a place at the uh, top of the table as well. I think it might have been, like, do you think it was like a result of financial difficulties after how long it took to make The Boy and the Heron? Uh, I haven't read anything about that. Because um, I don't think Ghibli is like the kind, like Miyazaki is the kind of guy who would just sell something unless they absolutely needed to. Or maybe this is more of a, like a a preservation deal is to try to, you know, keep the movies active. I don't think they need that, but who knows? Yeah, the, the new story is um, sort of centered on the idea of, failing to find a successor to Miyazaki because um, but what does that mean though 
Well, Goro has repeatedly rejected being a successor and um, he's like busy running a museum and a theme park, I think. They haven't been able to um, create a, a new generation of directors and artists to take the studio forward. And but like, like we, t- we said, like we said in the last time, I don't, when we talked about this, the movie, I, that was never the point of Studio Ghibli, right? It was, it was mostly just a vehicle for Miyazaki and, uh, uh, am I blanking on the other name? Isao Takahata. Takahata to make movies. <laughs> He's never, I don't think they ever tried to produce artists out of that. I'm sure they trade a lot of like animators and uh, what what have you, but I don't think it was ever like a, a a genuine studio. That's why I I had this whole tirade about refusing to call these movies Studio Ghibli movies. Perhaps this is um, from uh, an attempt from shareholders to sort of um, lay forward a path for the studio to keep to keep it go uh, as a going concern, so they can pump money into it and maybe improve the HR departments and um, encourage new talent to come through. I think, I, I honestly think it was financial difficulties. They were they were in some deep doo-doo after the last film uh, without, you know, so I think I think they needed that infusion of cash and part of that must have been some some sort of deal to acquire this, the, the film. And, you know, Nippon TV gains rights to all their films, of course, and there's there's a lot of moving pieces there. So I think I think there's more to that. I don't think this is just purely for creative reasons. Yeah. Um, okay. Then again, that's just speculation, in my opinion. I don't think there's we don't know anything yet. But uh, you know, I'd be curious to follow this story uh for longer if it if we hear more about it. Yeah, I, I yeah, I'd like to see if any new talent does develop and stay with the studio. Um so yeah, we can only wait and see. All right, so that was it for our news segment. So I can move on to the final segment of our episode, and that is culture consumption. Uh, so it's been a few weeks, Jason, but uh, what are the highlights of your of your uh, entertainment time or cultural time since last time we spoke? So yeah, I've been um, uh, putting my Japanese language textbooks and film books in order <laughs> while listening to a podcast called Watch Out for Fireballs. I recently started listening to it, and it's really fun. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Never heard of it. So watch out for Fireballs. Um, they cover a whole range of uh, games from uh, Japan and America, um, like Fallout New Vegas um, and uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Uh, two guys just going through uh, the games by following the structure of the story and then addressing characters and mechanics that pop up. And... Um, like because I have familiarity or I've played the games that they talk about, it's really entertaining to listen to them talk about it, talk about whatever the title is of the week. Ever since, I mean, I used to be a very, very avid uh, and frequent podcast listener, but it's kind of diminished since we started this podcast. I mean, it's been three years now or however it's been. And I think every now when I listen, with a few exceptions, every time I listen to a podcast, it's always <laughs> I always have this mentality in the back of my head: is what can I steal from there? Or what are <laughs> they doing? What are they doing better than us? Which is, I'm sure, a lot. But but that's I, I cannot get that of out of my mind as to are they is their audio better? Is there anything we can do to improve that? <laughs> so it's it's kind of it's been very 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 tough for me to actually get into a set, that's certainly new podcast. My my regular so to speak like podcast that i listen every episode to has more than halved since we started this since we've started our own yeah i've um i know that uh 
after living in Japan, I stopped listening to podcasts altogether. It wasn't until we started doing this, uh, and specifically um, within the last year, that I've started to listen to more podcasts. All right, so the opposite for you then? Yeah, probably because I come away from each episode thinking I should be more articulate, I should be more entertaining, I need to learn. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure it's fine. All right, so what what else, Jason? Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm doing a lot of festival work right now, and um, I'm uh, trying to crank out reviews for the Chicago International Film Festival, so I've been watching whole bunch of screeners for that is that something that you usually cover i don't uh, i don't remember seeing that before in your blog maybe maybe you, i just don't remember but no no this is a uh, first time for me um i uh, and uh i just took a chance and just like um like i was just like uh, maybe i should uh go for press accreditation and um like i don't often do that i just tend to write previews by just looking at the information on the websites and i went for press accreditation and they were like yeah hey you come on board. I was just like um, a bit gobsmacked, but um, yeah, happy to be covering it. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I f- like found out um, like last week and uh, kind of like spent some time sort of planning my coverage and uh, yeah, just jumped into it then. And uh, that's like loads of screeners on the go. And uh, yeah, apart from that, non festival films I've watched include Burning Paradise and The Swordsman. And uh, King Who movies uh, in preparation for um, uh, this episode of Heroic Purgatory. How about you? All right. Uh, so yeah, I've seen, I've seen a few movies, uh, played a few games. I, I actually this is for should have mentioned last time, but I forgot. I finally did watch Oppenheimer. Oh yes, uh, you did mention it. Yes, I mentioned it off the screen, but I don't think I mentioned it in the last episode's cultural consumption. I've uh, I hope I hope I did because <laughs> otherwise this would be a repeat. But I finally watched it. I enjoyed it. I don't think it was anything too groundbreaking. I thought it was all right. But uh, it's something that people, I think, should watch. I don't expect it to win any big awards. I'm not, again, <laughs> this could maybe come back to bite me, but I don't see it as the big as the big movie. I thought it was, you know, uh, you know, like, I mean, in many ways, an average biopic, but I thought, you know, like the subject matter was handled very, very well. But otherwise, I found it relatively unremarkable. Okay. I watched I I rewatched the movie Cloverfield, which I had seen before. Then I watched the the, the sort of like the other two movies that are supposedly part of the same franchise, which is Ten, Ten Cloverfield Lane and the Cloverfield Paradox. Yes, I had not seen them before, um, and I, I really enjoyed Ten Cloverfield Lane. I thought it was a great movie. Ten, the Cloverfield Paradox, I thought it was kind of a mess. I saw Ten Cloverfield Lane in the cinema with my mother and sister, and um, I don't know. I, I find that one kind of disappointing because I was expecting more monster action. Oh yeah, it was, it's that's all about sort of like the, the the yeah. I mean, I I knew what it was, so I didn't. I wasn't disappointed. I knew what it was happening. Yeah, uh, it's a bit. I think it's a bit forced that they are in the same universe. Universe. Yeah. That they take place in the universe. I don't think I. What I think is they have like these separate screenplays. They just can't try to like create like this kind of like Marvel type of uh, franchise that it's not really there. And I think it shows because I thought I, Cloverfield gets a lot of hate for some reason. I enjoyed that movie. Is it a masterpiece? Certainly not. Is it the best movie ever? Certainly not. But I thought it was a fun, well-made movie for you know the. You know, I think I think maybe came at a time where the found footage had kind of maybe run its course a little bit, especially with all the paranormal movies being around the same time. But I I, I really enjoyed Cloverfield. I can't remember. Does Jason survive in the end? I don't think he does. I don't think anybody survives. <laughs> uh, they fire the tape. 
Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think anybody survives. Uh, okay, so there's that. I watched a Canadian comedy called Mr. D, which I had never heard of before. Uh, it just popped up in my Amazon feed, and I said, oh, look, this looks interesting, and it's about a gym teacher. And it was very funny. I laughed a lot. Okay. Uh, uh, then I played a few interesting games. So I played a game called Axiom Verge, uh, which is an homage to uh, the Metroid games. Right. In fact, if you watch it, it's, it feels very, very similar. A very fun, extremely fun game. Play one of the funnest games that I've played in a, in a while. Uh, the story was forgettable, but I thought the gameplay was very interesting. Just like, again, if you enjoyed the Metroid series, this would, is, was, is right up your alley. A Super Metroid, very atmospheric and scary game. Absolutely, yeah. This one was a very a, almost entirely like the same, essentially the same highlight that Super Metroid would have. This would have as well. I, I'd never been that huge into Super Metroid, but I think the modern conveniences that Axiom Verge brought uh, made it like I think made made it not just enough, brought it up just enough for me to enjoy it a lot. Uh, I I played a, another game called Haiku the Robot, which is another Metroidvania. Uh, nothing nothing to uh, particular to drive home about. Just a fun game about uh, self aware robots that have kind of live in this post apocalyptic world, uh, and you're supposed to activate something. I I forget what the story is. Don't bring uh, back humanity. A, it was a mistake. No, it's not. They're not going to bring back humanity. But it's a you know exploration game. You fight some monsters. It's, it's pretty fun. I played quite a bit, but I eventually stopped uh, the the game Yakuza Like a Dragon. Okay. Uh, and I don't know. I found the gameplay extremely repetitive. I just did not... Uh, the story, the only reason I kept going, because the story is nothing remarkable. I just, as, as a... You know, you cannot be a, fil- a fan of Japanese movie without being a fan of Yakuza films, right? It's it's part of the DNA. So that part of it fascinated me. But otherwise, I found it just so boring and 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 repetitive. I I got to the point where I just every time there was a fight, which they are frequent in this game, they're hard to avoid. I just kind of would sigh so heavily because they just got so boring and repetitive that I I had absolutely zero interest in the fighting system and in the in the in the battle system. Yeah, all I ever see people talk about it, like the weird mini games. Yeah, it this one particular seemed to be like an homage of other RPG. Even the the character compares. It felt so weird because he compares himself to, to Dragon uh, Quest. Uh, but I'm I'm like I, the the thing I would ask is which one because it's not <laughs> uh the, the it's not like there's one of them and they're very different from each other. Yeah. So he doesn't say the Dragon Quest series. He's like he wants to be a hero, like in Dragon Quest. Like, which one are you talking about? The one with the merchant, maybe? That's popular. Uh, I got tired. I got tired of, like, uh, like this, uh, like, 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 almost exaggerated nobility of Yakuza that the main character kind of, like, sort of portrays. Yeah. Like, every time something doesn't wrong, he's, like, essentially repeats the same, like, oh, a true Yakuza would never do that. It's, like, calm down. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It, it felt extremely disingenuous from... People who maybe I don't know as a as a film of as a very big fan of the yakuza genre I don't think it was really a, a good representation of the yakuza genre. Yeah, and I don't necessarily have a problem with the 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 yakuza's nobility take on it because you know there are great films in that part of the genre as well. But I just there wasn't really enough in the game to keep my attention to keep to keep me entertained for long enough. That's fair. Uh, and then the last game that I'm actually currently playing now, and I was playing it until like two minutes before we start recording, 
is uh, Trails from Zero. Ah, yes. The, one one of the games in the famous Trails series, which until I started playing this game, I had not even heard of. Apparently, they're extremely famous. I don't know why I hadn't heard of. And I'm enjoying it. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it that much. At first, when I opened it, and I, 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 I think I sent this to you on a private message, that it felt to me like it was too childish, like too... Uh, too Pokemon-y or too like uh, like PG thirteen or PG. Uh, if I did like, there's everybody's just so nice. Nobody has a conflict with anybody, and even the villains are like cartoony villains. Yeah, they, yeah. There's definitely an optimistic tone to the first game, like t- teenagers striking out into the world. But the combat system is fantastic. Yeah, like that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, like even even the, for that childish, it seems to move a little bit. Uh, like to move a little slightly, get a little bit more complex, but it's still, I think, it maintains that optimism, which I think is maybe too much because this is supposed to be a world. And of course, every Trails, there's like the Giant Trail series, which is kind of like the Marvel shared universe from what I understand. And there's like different series, like mini, like like sub-series that are kind of centered on different parts of this world, right? Uh, and everything, everyone is sort of like different, but apparently like this is sort of like... Uh, like a world at the edge of war, right? Like, like, like being kind of held together by extre- an extremely fragile piece. At least this region of Crossbell that they talk about. There's like this ceasefire that it seems to be like, like very, very unstable or something. And for for something that being that on the edge, everybody's just so nice in this world. There's like hardly anybody who's like intense. There's there's the mafia, which is a very cartoony version of a of what a, the mob would be. Same thing with the gangsters. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole thing of like the crystals giving one kingdom the edge over the others, but that is being threatened. As I, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's in this game though. So they haven't talked about that yet. Okay, you might have jumped ahead in the series then. Well, so this is not the part, the first of the series, but from what I read, you can start, you can pick as long as you pick the first game of sub series. It doesn't matter because. It's like like every sub series is sort of like in its own. Just like again, like the Marvel users, you can you can have a movie about Spider Man, which is part of the rest of the Marvel uh, movies, but you don't necessarily have to see to have seen Iron Man to be able to enjoy Spider Man. And and I, from what I understand, this is how this series works as well. So yeah, so this takes place in Crossbell and sort of like there, yeah, they people the characters talk about the rest of the this continent or whatever it is, but it's it's kind of like it's very much its own story. And uh, but the combat system is really fun, uh, really fun, very intuitive. Uh, I find the combat sometimes perhaps a bit too difficult. Uh, like it combats, like I've I've died several times. Yeah, it, it it's like um, elemental based rock paper scissors sort of thing, and it encourages you to use magic as much as possible. Physical attacks don't just cut. Yeah, that's the thing, and there's like a, like a, an annoying uh, an annoying lack of effective area attacks. Yeah, and grinding and uh, leveling up doesn't work in the same way either. Like, yes, yeah, it's difficult so, but, to get stronger. But it's very enjoyable, and the story, like I said, despite my complaints, it's it's I think it's good enough, and the characters are decent enough that I think we'll see we'll see what direction. I'm still on the edge, but it could go. It could go one direction that is very good, or it could go another direction which is just uh, what I want to say, uh, like uh, a Pokemon direction. This I don't know. Like I, I hate when like there's something this trend that is like very like you see it in anime all the time, where something obvious happens, 
and it's obvious to anyone to the, to any even the, the most the least intelligent audience member and yet the characters have to explain it anyway like i saw what happened you don't have to comment on what happened right and there's there's some of that in this game a lot where the characters feel the need to say the, to state the obvious basically uh and there's like i call that the dragon ball syndrome uh, the Dragon Ball Z syndrome, because that's pretty much the entirety of Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Well, hopefully you have positive things to say in the next episode. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's it's uh, like I said, I was playing it until like before we started recording. But uh, after that, that is my cultural consumption since last we spoke. Sounds like a lot. Uh, yeah, more games than other forms of entertainment, but uh, it's it's been fun. And the Steam Deck certainly helps, because all these games that I mentioned were played on the Steam Deck. Uh, the Trails of series is a massive time sink. Absolutely, yeah. Which is fine, because, you know, I, like, I, I have no requirement that I need to finish it in a certain amount of time. So even I play a few hours a day, or mostly on the weekends, that's fine for me, for the way I play. I don't mind uh, games taking long to finish. All right. Uh, so after that, uh, I think this brings uh, us to the end of the episode. So any closing thoughts, Jason? Uh, yeah, really enjoyed um, exploring King Hu's uh, filmography. And um, anybody listening to this, like definitely check out Dragon Inn, um, Touch of Zen, and um, uh, Come Drink With Me. It's really good. And also um, Raining in the Mountains. That's another great film as well. And uh yeah, if you've never seen them before, you'll have a real education in Asian cinema. And um, yeah, you'll have a new appreciation for King Who. And yeah, I'd just like to thank uh, people who stuck with us and uh, who are still listening. Um, hope you tune in for the next episode. And uh, yeah, feel free to drop us a line. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much for the conversation, John. All right, Jason. So, uh, so that was that for this episode. Um, if you have any, uh, for our audience, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestion please let us know at heroic-purgatory.com or on twitter at heroic purgatory all in one word otherwise we'll see you next time